Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. Amazon famously doesn't do partnerships well. Do they ultimately decide to get heavily, heavily into healthcare? or if they become sort of, quote, unquote, a healthcare company or not. I love Amazon. I hate Amazon. But I love their ability to take big bets, try and figure things out. And then they're very aggressive about stopping the bet if they don't see it going in the direction they want it to go. Thanks for joining us on This Week Health Keynote. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engage. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, today we are joined by Scott Becker from Becker's Healthcare. Scott, welcome back to the show. You know, what a pleasure to visit with you always. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So after our last conversation, some people pulled me aside and they said, they would like to hear the two of us just talk about healthcare news. And so if you're up for it, rather than an interview per se, what I'd like to do is just throw out some of the headlines and talk about what's going on in healthcare and in the world of healthcare. Are you up for this? That sounds like a complete pleasurable way to spend some time, Bill. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So there's a lot of headlines to choose from. Let's start with the fun one. Amazon's purchase of One Medical. I'm sure you've commented, read a lot about this and made some comments on it. What's your take on what's going on? What's, let's do it from the Amazon perspective. What are they trying to do? Sure. So from the Amazon perspective, this is going to be the great question. So Amazon is trying to, if, if you look at the five largest companies in the country by revenues, Walmart, Amazon, I think Apple, then CVS and United Healthcare, the five biggest by revenues in the country. Healthcare is 20 plus percent of the economy. And when you really look at healthcare, it's probably more than that, quite frankly, when you're really taking all the consumer stuff and everything else. So what happens is Amazon and all these companies have to somehow or another be touching healthcare. In order to drive their multiples, in order to drive their growth, they have to touch it at some point. They have to touch it. And then they have to decide. Like, so CVS and Optum are four and five in terms of Optum United are four and five, fourth and fifth largest companies in the country in terms of revenues. They're much lower in terms of market cap, just because the healthcare revenues, the margins aren't as high as they are at an Amazon or an Apple or something like that. But what you have to sort of try and figure out, what Amazon wants to figure out, the best analogy I can have is as follows. When United first started with Optum now 10, 15 years ago, all of us looked on sort of trying to understand how was United going to be in the provider business? And then that company, United, had to make a decision. Are they doubling down on this aggressively or are they not? United obviously made the decision with Optum to double, triple, quadruple down on it and decide they wanted to be as much in the insurance business as they did in the provider business. Now, Optum's a bigger part of United than it's United, the insurance business. And they made a decision to double, triple down. Amazon, in contrast, we all know, has opened retail stores, has bought Whole Foods, has built Amazon Web Services, and has built several other businesses. Amazon Web Services ultimately is the driver of growth and profit at Amazon. The whole rest of it is fine. Whole Foods, an important acquisition, the first big bricks and mortars acquisition, you and I know 
they've handled it well, but they certainly haven't doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on it. If they did, we'd see Whole Foods every place, but we don't. We have not seen huge growth in the number of footprint of Whole Foods, rather it's sort of strengthening what they're already doing with Whole Foods. It's similar with MGM, they bought MGM in the studio company, they'll either double down on Amazon streaming, Amazon Prime, or they won't. The big question for us in healthcare with what medical is, this is Amazon's their second or third serious investment in healthcare, but you have to remember, it's not that serious for them. It's a multi-billion dollar acquisition for a company that does $400 billion a year in revenues. When in Whole Foods, I think it was a $14 billion acquisition. We'll know over the next two years or so, or next five years, whether Amazon took the tact of United Healthcare as United did with Optum, or they take more of the tact that, you know, that Amazon's taking with Whole Foods is, is to whether or not they really double down and they're just minded or it's more of an experiment. And one of the things that Amazon's been famous for, and Annie Jassy is now the CEO of Amazon, is with Jeff Bezos too, is taking bets on a lot of areas and then deciding are they really doubling down on them or not. And so the big question for healthcare is, what does Amazon do next with it? Buying it's one thing, whether they double down on it, whether they commit that the margins are good enough to double down on it or not, is anybody's bet. Obviously, they're not going to be margins like they have an Amazon website, web services, AWS. They're just, they're just never going to be margins like that. But will they be good enough margins or will it solve a different problem for Amazon with their own employees' healthcare, like Kaiser was built for it to do originally or not? But the great question for me is, will they double down on it or not? Yeah, it's interesting. One of the problems with Amazon is they, as you said, took bets on things, right? So it's almost like every department head, every leader sort of touched on healthcare, but there was no concentrated strategy. You had something around voice. So you had your Amazon Echo strategy that they were going into hospitals with. You had your pill pack and you had that strategy that they were going with. I think the anomaly obviously is Haven. But I think what's happening now is you're seeing with the addition of Aaron Martin, and coming from Providence and all the work that he's done, you essentially have somebody coming in there who I think understands healthcare. It's not that they didn't have people, they had some great people who understood healthcare, even came from healthcare, but I think he strategically understands healthcare. And if he can get the mind share, I think his path makes a lot of sense. And they want primary care. Uh, I, I don't, we're going to talk about another story here, TikTok buying hospitals and our parent company buying hospitals in China. I don't think Amazon, Apple, and the rest of them are looking to get into large, uh, the, the, into the hospital business, low margin, high acuity, high risk. I, I don't think they're looking to do that. They're really looking to get into that path where they're connected with the consumer. It makes sense that CVS, Aetna, and United Optum are buying up primary care because quite frankly, if they can control that that spend, they get the insurance dollar, the first insurance dollar. They also get the opportunity to control where that next dollar is getting spent, which hospital system is it getting spent at, and potentially coordinating that to lower their overall costs across their entire business. It's really an interesting model. But when I look at Amazon, I think they have the potential to do something but I agree with you. I don't, I don't know how they're going to get to scale. United's just spending money. Optum's just purchasing practice after practice. Amazon, yeah. I'm not sure how they're going to get to scale. I think they believe they're going to be able to do it digitally. And that remains to be seen, whether they're going to be able to build out 
a comprehensive digital strategy. And the thing I put out there about four years ago, four or five years ago was I thought Amazon eventually had to get into the insurance business somehow. And back then I was, I, people told me I was crazy. And the more I look at it, I'm like, it sort of makes sense. I don't know that they'll do it. And there's no indication that they will, but it's just one of the things I think is, is an interesting opportunity out there. Well, there's so many things that you said that are so interesting. I'll just tag off a couple of those very quickly, Phil. One, you mentioned Aaron Martin. Aaron was an Amazon leader before he was a Providence leader. So for Aaron, it's a return to Amazon. And he right. does have the experience with both and fascinating perspective on both. So you're absolutely right. That's fascinating. You mentioned that Amazon, CVS has talked about for the last several years, and obviously Edna is, but if you go to a CVS store, and they've built out, like Walgreens did, all these hubs for healthcare at their stores, none of which are very well staffed. And so, right. at least I shouldn't say that. At least all the ones I ever see are never well staffed. Well, so be we, we used to staff them in Southern California. I mean, there was a partnership between us and CVS, and our doctors were in the CVSs back in the day. And the last thing you mentioned was Haven. And Haven's fascinating, too, because this is Amazon doing a partnership with Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan. And Amazon famously doesn't do partnerships well, and none of the three of them were that committed to the whole thing either. They were really looking at it first and foremost, could they use it to lower their own employee healthcare costs? Then could they use it, could it become some kind of business? But none of them plays very well as partners, so not surprised where Amazon's got this $400 billion a year in sales only behind Walmart. And so they've got the ability to fund stuff if they choose to fund it, but you're absolutely right. Do they ultimately decide, oh my goodness, this looks cool, but it's going to be a low margin business to get heavily, heavily into healthcare, or do they decide, okay, we're going to do this. And of course, United Optum's multiples, the multiples that United Optum and CBS trade at are literally a third or a fourth of what the Amazons trade at, the technology companies trade at. So as they get further and further into this, is this going to be very dilutive to their multiples if they become sort of quote unquote a healthcare company or not? So fascinating perspective. Uh, fascinating to see. I mean, I, I love Amazon. I love Amazon. I hate Amazon. But I love their ability to take big bets, try and figure things out. And then they're very aggressive about stopping the bet if they don't see it going in the direction they want it to go. And so it'll be fascinating to see where they end up a year or two or five years in it. And we misread that a lot of times. When it doesn't work, we go, oh, see, they failed. They're going to they're gonna run away. And then they just keep coming back. Um, well, it's actually the opposite. It's, they're smart enough to understand. You and I know the core of businesses. You keep on doubling down on your strengths. You be smart enough to close off your weaknesses, stuff like that. They're very, very smart about it. And people might see it as a failure. We view it as they're smart, smart people. Now, what happens is United was already in the insurance and healthcare business when they started to double and triple down on Optum. In hindsight, 10, 15 years later, it was brilliant. And the provider side is a higher margin side than the insurance side, though both are great, great businesses for them. And they have so many synergies too. Amazon's in a spot where they're trading at a Whenever I look at it, and the, the earnings were so screwed up the last quarter or so, but they're usually trading at a 50, 60 types price to earnings. These other companies traded a 10, traded a 12. And yeah. so it'll be interesting to see how far they end up going into it. For United, it was accretive to their multiple. For Amazon, certainly not going to be accretive to their multiple. So it'll just, we'll see where they go. We'll get back to our show in just a moment. I wanted to take this opportunity to invite you to our next webinar, Challenges and Solutions to Unmanaged Devices in Healthcare. This is where we're going to take a look at the tools that are integral to keeping patients healthy and what we're doing to secure those tools and find them in some cases. Guests will be leaders from Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, Intermountain, 
And we're also going to have representatives from Medigate by Clarity on the call as well. And they're going to share their experiences in maintaining these devices and uh, just some of the success stories, some of the challenges that they've had as well. We're going to do all that on September 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. You can register on our website, thisweekhealth.com. The top right-hand corner has our upcoming webinars. Just go ahead and click on that. I'd love to have you register for that. You could also give us your questions ahead of time. I can give them to the guests and we can make sure that we talk about them on the webinar so your topics get addressed. Before the webinar, we're going to be having a briefing campaign, five short episodes on the channel about this important topic of securing your unmanaged devices in in the hospital setting. You want to check those out as well. You can also check out those on thisweekhealth.com. So look forward to having that conversation. Love to have you join us. Now, back to our show. Let's talk privacy. The TikTok story is sort of a goofy thing. I mean, it's in China, so it's a different market. It's a parent company of TikTok. I, I almost hesitate to talk about it because it's pretty new and it's kind of goofy. But the privacy thing did come up with regard to Amazon and One Medical. And I think early on, there was a group of One Medical patients that essentially said, I don't know how I feel about Amazon having my data. And I'm curious, as you look at it, does the American public care about privacy? Or is this just a minority of people that are saying, hey, we care about privacy. We don't want big tech to have our medical data and that kind of stuff. Because when I talk to the younger generation, they're like, yeah, I'll trade it for convenience. When I talk to the older generation, they're like, yeah, I don't really care. I mean, is this just a small vocal population that cares about privacy these days? I think what happens is, yes and no. I think what happens is, it's a great, great question. It's a complex question. Oh, my goodness. We've all sort of assumed with the big tech companies that they're going to have all our data, all our data is going to be available. You follow me? And, yeah. and then nobody really cares about it until it turns up. I mean, there's obviously people that care about it that are just litigators or false claims people are trying to make hay out of it to make money. But the time when people care about it is when embarrassing stuff comes out about them. That's when people care about their data. So, for example, if you're secretly a crazy right wing or crazy left wing person, and nobody really knows that, but somehow or another, somebody's got data on it that like, all you do is watch Trump videos all day. All of a sudden, somebody will look at it and say like, oh, they shouldn't have told everybody. I'm trying to hide that. I don't do that. Or whatever, whoever it is. Or yeah. if there's, in the old days where HIPAA laws first came into play, and, and that's not a knock on President Trump. It's just a question as to whether somebody themselves doesn't want to be known like that or doesn't want to be known for what they watch or what they do. And there's so many things like that. In the old days, when HIPAA really became law, was when the pharmaceutical companies were buying data and then they were using it for marketing purposes. So you, you don't want the whole world to know that you've got whatever illness you have. And it wasn't really that you're so concerned that somebody, maybe you were concerned, but there are a ton of different illnesses you wouldn't want the world to know. You might not want to, I see a therapist pair. Of, so Scott, one of the things that keeps coming up is, hey, we don't want the insurance carrier to know. And so you have United and Optum together and we don't want the insurance carrier to know this and make decisions based on the information right. that they have. Right. It's it's complicated because they're going to have that information. And then it's a matter of having roadblocks, barriers, yeah, so agree. they can't use it in the wrong way. I mean, the challenge is, it's, it's what's interesting about President Trump and Trump, President Biden is President Trump raised the alarm a couple of years ago about TikTok having all our data. And we all thought he was sort of, it was just sort of like, we didn't know what he was talking about, really. And it turns out, he wasn't so wrong. He explained it very poorly because the same thing came up in the, in the last few months 
with President Biden being concerned about how much data TikTok has. And so I think most Americans, the day-to-day American person, the day-to-day one of us, have largely realized that a lot of our data is at risk. We've left this huge electronic footprint for whatever we do, and then we don't really care. It's just talk until once in a while something happens. We're like, hey, I thought that was private. So I, I didn't think that was going to be spread to the whole world. So I don't know. But I don't think day to day, I think your point is really well taken, Bill. It's interesting. Being in this space for a while, and I've done a little bit of research here, the, the reality is our digital exhaust tells so much about us. Scott, you're out on LinkedIn, you're out on other platforms. And when you just click like on this or put a comment on this, that, that becomes a trail. The people who friend you becomes a trail. And it's interesting, I did see some back office kind of stuff where they put all these things together and said, Bill, here's your profile. And I looked at that profile and I thought, yeah, that's me. That is me. They've got me down in terms of my political persuasion. They got me down in terms of my religious persuasion. They got me down. And I'm just, I'm reading all this going, oh my gosh. I, and I'm like, how did you get this information? I never gave you this information. They're like every click. Yes. And so what happens is where it becomes problematic is, you know, I mean, if you have the Justice Department, the IRS, others targeting people based on their political persuasion, it becomes problematic there. It becomes problematic if that stuff is used to embarrass you. Like like you might truly be lean right, lean left, but you might not portray it to the public. You might just sort of like keep your politics to yourself. People, there was the old adage, you don't talk about sex, religion or politics. But now that everybody has all of your stuff, they can talk about what your positions are, all those things without you even wanting to. So that's when somebody gets embarrassed by it is when they care about privacy again, I think, or if the, or if the government misuses it. I mean, Republican administrations, Democratic administrations have periodically misused data. People worry about it for that purpose, too. All right. I put a post out there on LinkedIn on this one. Teladoc announces $1.3 billion in losses. And the question I asked was, is this more about Teladoc and their acquisition, or is this more about the future of telehealth? I'll leave it there and throw it to you and say 1.3 billion. A lot of that was the write-off of the Livongo acquisition and whatnot. Does this tell us anything about telehealth or is it is it more just about the business and the acquisition? No, I think what happens with telehealth really is the no, telehealth should be here to stay. It, it's got to be managed closely because at the same time, it's not a, people talk about things. I, I've heard them talk about from an artificial intelligence perspective. Are they truly an incremental change or are they completely a game changer? So telehealth is a way to better leverage doctor's time or clinician's time. It's not a way to replace clinicians or doctors. So it's a better leveraging model because now a doctor could see 20 patients over five hours versus having to sit through 30, 40 appointments, whatever the numbers are. And you could also leverage people without being in the same location. So if you're in a rural area, you could see a doctor, even though those doctors aren't as present in the rural area as you'd like. So it's an enhancer, it's a leverager of people. It's not a changing, it's not as transformative as it would be to plug your data into a computer and a computer tell you what is wrong with you and what's going on. That would be sort of the next level of you know, if not leveraging, but replacing headcount, replacing people. So at the end of the day, telehealth is a business like all others. It's got revenues that's got to come in. It's got costs that got to come in. When during the pandemic, when one, there was this quantitative easing, interest rates went down to zero. 
and some of these technology businesses were viewed as like the next, next home run. These things got valued so incredibly highly. The Pelotons of the world, the Netflix of the world, a lot of these businesses that were completely pandemic driven, as was telehealth to a whole different degree than it was before, got really blown up in terms of their valuation, not their earnings. Most of them weren't showing great earnings uh, at that point or now. Livongo, telehealth, teledoc is like that. At the end of the day, they've got to become a real profitable operating business. And this is what's going on throughout technology now. And Bill, this is near a year an expert in. Many of these venture capital fund companies that were built to grow like crazy until profits 10 years later are all of a sudden in a spot where their venture capital investors, their funds are saying, you, you got to find a way to get to a pathway to profitability sooner. That's why like when Uber showed much better revenues and results this quarter, Lyft did too, their valuations blew up, but they blew up positively for the right reasons because they're starting to get closer to profitability rather than just being a darling of the time or due to quantitative easing. So for Teladoc, the proof will be over the next several years, whether it becomes truly a profitable business, they can bring in more revenues than they have cost, or if it was just a pandemic-driven blown-up stock. The last couple of years, well, last decade, really, we've had a lot of this VCs coming in and essentially say growth, 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 and away you go. That changed. It feels like overnight, at least to, to these to these founders and these startups, feels like it changed overnight. And that's a pretty uniform uh, thing that the private equity companies, the VC firms are sitting down with their portfolio companies and saying, yeah, we said focus solely on growth. Now we want you to, I mean, you, you hit on that pretty well. Get to that operational break-even, operational profitability a lot sooner. And it feels like that that game has changed. If you were going, I'm going to come back to telehealth, but if you were doing a startup right now, would you pitch a growth kind of model or would you even change your pitch to be more about getting to profitability pretty quick? Sure, so it's a complicated question and I'm not in that position right now, so it's harder for me to discuss it. There's a couple of things that are going on. There's a great article in the Wall Street Journal the other day about how the amount of cash being put into startups and venture type things is a lot softer than it was at one time. So founders, people starting companies, technology companies and others have much less leverage than they did just a couple of years ago or a year or two ago, so that's one. Two is I'm an investor in a handful of companies that were funded by huge venture capital funds where I have very, very, very small investments. But it's been a huge education for me to learn. I built businesses where you had to get to profitability immediately, not outside funders and stuff like that. Just a very different business that I was in. And so for me to see companies that are funded by giants, I have small, small pieces, incredibly small pieces, like not infinitesimally small, but what's been an education for me is sort of like the pathway, the pathway of what they are trying to do. And some of these VC funds are so good at it, so good at understanding. Once they have a conviction around an area, understanding the area, how they have to back up the bus to sort of get that area to profitability, they just have a very different worldview than most of us do. You follow me? I mean, like they just have a very different view of how they could get something from point A to point B over the course of years, whereas most of us can't live like that because it's our own business. We're totally reliant on it. Where they're, they're 
both investors, speculators, business growers, and stuff like that. So I don't know what the answer is. Certainly, there's more appetite for any growth equity or private equity fund for where you can get to profitability quicker. But there is still very much the VC view of we don't want to do something unless it's going to be a huge game changer. And we understand there's going to be a huge amount of dollars to go behind this to get to the spot where it's going to be a game changer and very valuable. So I don't have an answer to it. Yeah. But there's there are two different types of investors, the VC investors versus the PE investors. Yeah. When I talk to people who are going out for money and they ask me what my thoughts are on it, I said, think of it like your marriage. I mean, this is an important, important, important. I mean, who you take money from is a really big decision because some of those firms can come alongside you, as you were sort of alluding to, some of those firms can come alongside you and really make you successful because they really have a, a knowledge or they really have the partnerships or they really have mechanisms to catapult you forward. So it's really important to find the right partner as you move forward. So you know, when somebody's like, hey, somebody offered me money, I'm like, all right, well, who offered you the money and what else is coming along with that money? But your point is well taken. And there's a bunch of studies on this that a handful of venture capital funds end up seeing better deals, have better connectivity, have better results than the whole rest of the venture capital funds. And it's not that it's completely an 80-20 type Pareto principle time, but it's pretty close to it. There's a handful of leading VC firms that just have a much better track record than the rest of them. And there's, there's others as well. And that's why those ones see better deals too, because there's more confidence they'll get from point A to point B, 100%. All right. So you talked about telehealth. You talked about it from an efficiency standpoint. And uh, there was a great article, Harvard Business Review article on the telehealth era is just beginning. It was written by former CEO for Kaiser Permanente Medical Group and the current executive director for Intermountain Healthcare. The question I asked here is Intermountain and Kaiser have been incredibly successful with telehealth, where it's not that other, I mean, we can find other health systems that are doing yeah. some good work, but the question is, why is it just because they have taken on risk for a population that they have been so successful with telehealth? It's a big part of it. What happens with Kaiser is the great example of this. Kaiser, before the pandemic, was famously touting that they were doing more than half of their visits virtually in some way or another. And everybody else in the world was very envious of that because how was Kaiser able to do that? They were doing 50, 60% of their visits virtually pre-pandemic. And why they were able to do that is it's cheaper to see the patients virtually than in person, saves a lot of money, and they weren't worried about fee-for-service reimbursement for it because they were capitated on those patients. So for them, it just made sense to see the patient in the more efficient way, regardless. So are we in an early innings of telehealth? Absolutely. Telehealth is just, there's no way around it. There's just, we have too big a population. We have too many clumps geographically of where doctors are versus where people are. I mean, there's just, for the whole reason why teleradiology was the early forerunner of telehealth, there just wasn't people to read x-rays and images in small towns in America or sometimes in urban hospitals. And so telehealth and radiology was way in front of everything else. And as we have a growing population and not enough providers, and this disproportion of where providers are versus where we need them, there's no way around. But telehealth has to get better. I mean, anybody that has had telehealth visits, you know, it, my parents had telehealth visits for something very complex, it was a total debacle, they ended up in the ER. I mean, it still has to get better. 
and, and they're getting better and everybody's getting better. It's a science like anything else. Let's get better at how you deliver it, how you take care of the patient, how you really focus. You know, I mean, it's, it's got to get better, but it for sure is early innings in it. It's going to be pervasive. It has to be. Well, it's interesting in this article because they talk about better. I mean, obviously access is there, cost is there, but they talk about better outcomes. And the Intermountain part of that story is pretty compelling in terms of the fact, uh, just because of the fact that they're able to have more touch points and yeah. and intervene earlier in the process. And so they just look at the numbers and say, you know, you're more likely to survive in their program than you are generally in the rest of the country because they have that model. When I look at telehealth, I agree with you. We are absolutely in the early innings of this, but I think it's people who figure out how to marry the efficiencies of telehealth and the outcomes of telehealth with a business model that pays them for it. The people who yes. are waiting for the government to all of a sudden up their rates and pay them a fortune for telehealth, even though we did just, or actually I think it's going to the Senate now to take the pandemic reimbursement rates through the next two years. But those who are waiting for the government to do it, I think are, are that's not a winning game. But it's the, but it is the people. United has a, a a good telehealth program, and they get paid on both ends. CVS, Amazon's heading in that direction. Intermountain, uh, Kaiser. I mean, if you're getting paid that first dollar, and you can add those efficiencies, even though we see Kaiser with their 1.3 billion dollar loss, they had an operating gain this yeah. this quarter, and th this is a quarter where a lot of other health systems did not show that kind of. Uh, resiliency they had it was generally a, a down quarter for a lot of integrated delivery networks so i would be looking for the business model to marry with with telehealth and see where you could take it and i think those organizations that take on more risk more capitation across the board i think they're going to be better off long term yeah no we couldn't agree with you more that this is where it's going and there's no way around it i totally agree with everything i'm sure the intermountain study said it just is so much more convenient, so much more access. And just convenience and access makes it more likely that people are going to get care. I just think you're still at a spot where the actual visit, depending on the doctor, the attention, the focus of the doctor, the focus of the patient, the ability for the patients to convey things in the right way, is still a work in progress. But overall, we're a big believer that it's where we're, there's no way around it. It's where we're going. All right. Let's hit on one of your favorite topics, which is the economy and the finances and there's a couple of things around this. One is the pandemic was sort of a mixture of results for organizations. It was extremely bad the first year. And then the government stepped in, did okay. Second year was a little better. It actually was better. But now we have the economy sort of slipping into this. I know we're not calling it a recession, whatever we're supposed to call it. But you have high inflation. You have people making a decision on healthcare, not related to their health, but more related to uh, finances. Do I really need that surgery? Do I really want to see my primary care doc? And so when we look at the financial picture for healthcare, are, are we just in another one of those up and down cycles that we normally see in healthcare that's down now, it'll go up? Or it, yeah. are we starting to see more of a trend that's related to increased competition different options for people in terms of getting care, or are we just not there yet? Well, I think that you're in a very challenging time economically for health systems. There's no question about it. And as health systems would explain it, reimbursement is flat to relatively flat, maybe up a couple percent. The cost of providing the service, the inflation on 
clinicians, nurses, physicians, everybody involved in clinical is way, way up. So if your reimbursement is going up 2% and your cost of providing in your staff is going up 10, 15%, your drug costs are going up, your supply costs are going up, those go up a lot higher than your reimbursement costs are going up and you're in a relatively low margin business to begin with, it's a very challenging situation. Ascension reported an $880 million loss this last quarter. Those are real losses. Those are real numbers. And you're absolutely right. The pandemic was a very daunting time for hospitals in terms of morale, people, staffing, everything. But after the first several months of it being a horrible financial situation, the government really did step in. So we had during the pandemic, record low numbers of hospital closures, which we hadn't seen in a long time, but they're just the government stepped in and took care of our healthcare community like they needed to do so, at least economically. Now you've got a situation with government aid, the pandemic aid is gone. And so you look into the situation where hospitals and health systems, you have an airline has increased input cost, oil, fuel, staffing, pilots, everything else, they raise their rates like crazy. You, you and I've seen it. It's very elastic. Very quickly, rates for flying anybody's have gone up tremendously. In healthcare, the system has no control over Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement. Commercial reimbursement is also tough. And in fact, commercial reimbursement is getting tougher again, where uh, the big commercial payers are they're fairly consolidated. They're again getting the message from big employers, I got to get healthcare costs under control. And that gets pushed down to hospitals and physicians who don't see serious reimbursement raises at their spot. So I think you're, you're in for a very daunting time for hospitals and health systems. I think very. I mean, I hear it every day that it, many health system CEOs will say, after just being through the pandemic, that this is the most challenging time they've ever faced, at least in terms of actually running an organization and trying to run it to, to make sure it keeps on sustaining itself. I think it was a Becker's article I saw, number of turnovers amongst CEOs it was pretty staggering. I don't remember the number, but it was pretty It was pretty high. Yeah, the hospital yeah. CEO job is very difficult. So many of these hospital CEOs said, I'm going to get my system through the pandemic. I'm going to work through it. I'm going to do that. But I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. I'm ready. And so there you've had a, a huge number of people step start to retire and, and leave those jobs. Yeah. So the, the one story that hit me kind of, I'm not sure, it sort of hit me the wrong way. And that was the Ohio Health outsources their IT team to Accenture. It wasn't only IT, it was also, I think Revenue Cycle was outsourced as well. And the incredible thing about that story was not that they're doing that. I understand doing that. And there's many organizations that have offshore capabilities. Either they do it for their existing staff or they do it through business associates, right? So... We have yes. revenue cycle data scientists. We have, they're working around the world. In fact, I did an interview yesterday with, uh, with a team that does a lot of work in healthcare. And we were talking because a bunch of their data scientists are in the Ukraine. And we just talked through what that was like to uh, really handle that team through culture and safety. But uh, the announcement said, we're not doing this for financial reasons. There's really no financial benefit. We're doing this to improve care to improve our, essentially improve our readiness for the future. And we feel like we're better positioned to do that by outsourcing that. But essentially what they're saying is you're in Chicago. It's essentially, well, actually I should take a winning team. It's like the Dodgers. They come in second place in the World Series and the guy they bring in to run the thing goes, but I want to win the championship. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to fire the entire team and hire somebody else. 
That's what it felt like. Right. It just it just didn't sit right it, to me. It, it, yeah, no, and I don't think that. I think there's probably multiple pieces to it, and I don't know the people involved there, but I'll tell you what happens in most places. In most places today, over the last couple of years, hospitals and health systems have had this absolute horrendous job being able to staff revenue cycle how they used to staff it. it just yeah. It's just very, very hard. It's a huge turnover area. It's an area that's traditionally been underpaid with great people that have had relatively minimum wage jobs. And so it's an area, and in those minimum wage jobs, the turnover is tremendous, 25, 30% a year. And, and so what's happened with many health systems on revenue cycle, it's why in revenue cycle, systems are so excited about trying to find AI solutions. They don't want to get rid of people. They just can't staff. They just can't staff them. And so then what happens with like when you outsource it, there's multiple things that, that typically happen and it's all over the board. And some places you outsource, but a lot of the line people, the core people doing the day-to-day jobs, stay in the job. They just have a different employer. Other times, no, that's not the case. They're really outsourcing it and everything's moving to a different part of the world. And we've seen studies on this where sometimes you, if it costs you 50000 an employee here and you could outsource jobs, it's costing you 10000 an employee in India, for example. And literally is the difference. And so if a big enough system outsources some of those jobs, they're not, they're not really allowed to a lot of health systems anyways because of privacy and other kinds of rules and restricting it. But some companies can do it for other kinds of business. And the difference in cost is dramatic. And so th- there's two or three things. One is I take all of these statements by these systems with a grain of salt. So right. when a system says, we're not doing about money, we're doing it out of an efficiency, yeah. the truth is always somewhere in between. I mean, the truth is always somewhere in between. Often, they just can't staff the stuff as it is. So they're trying to figure out a solution to it. Second, people want to outsource whatever is not their core because they don't have enough bandwidth. These systems have thousands and thousands and thousands of revenue cycle employees. And it's a complicated area. They got to be good at it. And it's gotten a lot harder to be good at the last several years. Yeah. It's the IT side that I struggled a little bit with. And I mean, 500, 500 employees gone. And look, I've listened to the Ohio Health leadership at the JP Morgan conference. It's a smart group of people. I'm sure it was deliberated over and, and looked at and whatnot. But I've also been on both sides. I've been on, oh, yeah. I've been on the side of when I started as a CIO at St. Joe's, it was an insource. So we were bringing it in after a 10 year Perot outsource. And that was daunting to say the least. And the contract was not good in the, in the final couple of years, which is why they decided to insource. So I understand. But you, but you mentioned something there that's, that's fascinating on a bunch of levels. One is the outsource and insource of these things. It's, there is a great question. Are those 500 employees having opportunities elsewhere in the system or not? What do their job prospects look like? Who are those people and how do those jobs look? A majority of them, their job prospects are really good. Ohio, I mean, has a lot of really great employers and we're doing remote work. They could probably work in a Philadelphia health system. The other thing that is fascinating is there are a number of these technology-driven healthcare companies and won't name names, but they were built on the venture capital growth concept that you and I have talked about. They have announced massive layoffs recently. I mean, they were built to try and go after a certain level of business. That business is not there. And now they are in heavy, and some of them are highly public, highly discussed, highly brand centric, uh, but really finding themselves on the other side of this growth situation where all of a sudden they have too many people for what they're trying to do. 
And that's a totally different debacle built from sometimes sort of like, I'm a big fan of you don't build armies that you don't need. And many of these companies were building armies they didn't really need. Scott, how many, how many interviews are you doing these days? Well, we'll do typically somewhere between five to seven a day of talking to people, but they're short interviews. They're typically 15 minutes, but I do find it absolutely fascinating. I just got off the phone podcast with Dr. Jay Robinson, who runs a few hospitals for, runs a market now for Kaiser Permanente. And it just is, it's just fascinating. And then I had one half hour before that with one of our editors-in-chief, Laura Deirdre, talking about a couple of the issues she's watching, like, which I didn't understand. I didn't know this. But in this most recent chip bill going to Congress, this is very important to health systems who have been trouble, have been seeing huge inflation with anything that requires a chip. I always think about it, there's not enough cars around, there's not enough this around, there's not enough around. And the chip companies are, again, of course, you, you watch this closely because this is your world. All of a sudden, the chip companies are going the wrong direction because all of a sudden there's an oversupply of chips versus an undersupply of chips in certain areas. Yeah. But what a... What, how quickly that changed as well. But so I was on with Laura, I was on with a, another leader who ran one of these big urology platforms for a private equity fund. I think typically we'll do anywhere from five to seven a day. Keeps me really sort of learning what's going on. I find it fascinating. Some of them, I appreciate the chance to catch up with them, hear what's going on and share what they're doing with the audience. Others, I really learn and it's fascinating for me. How's the conference? Are conferences back? Sure. So the conferences are, we have five large meetings a year at Becker's Healthcare. The most important ones from the company's perspective are the hospital health system annual meeting and the CEO meeting that we do in the fall. And then second, third right there is our health IT digital health revenue cycle meeting, which has grown into a bigger space this fall. The hospital annual meeting in April went tremendously well. Like people were already, it was very big, very vibrant. We had huge fun speakers, Peyton Manning, Mantra Johnson, President Bush, and huge leadership from the healthcare community. It was just a fantastic meeting. Uh, it was probably about 5% less than it was in attendance when it was really going three years ago, but just fantastic. Some of our smaller meetings are still down a little bit of attendance. Our health IT meetings should be up in attendance, but it was a growing meeting. It was never, it was never one of our largest meetings to begin with. So it's going okay. People are very interested to like, visit again in public, the thing we worry about so many things in the conference business, you worry about from a cost-saving perspective, you get to a spot where at some point health systems start to cut travel budgets. It's another way to cut budgets like that. But no, overall, it's going, it's going very well. I watch everything in the analog to what's going on in business. If you look at Disney, Disney hit it this quarter unexpectedly on all eight cylinders for both the digital streaming business is outpaced Netflix and their parks business is back. And so I view our, our media business in a very similar lens. Like our conference business is like the in-person parks business and the digital business has gone great the last few years. So we're trying to keep that going great and then make sure the parks business or the conference business is going great too. And for us, it's critical that we get the, the right people there that want to visit and network and talk and learn from each other. So it's overall going, it went great in April and we're hoping it goes great coming in now. Sounds good. Scott, I want to thank you for your time. Always a pleasure to catch up with you and look forward to seeing you again in person sometime soon. Bill, can't wait. Thank you so much. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from a channel like this, from these kinds of discussions, go ahead and forward them a note. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, everywhere. 
Go ahead, subscribe today. Send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.